0: Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Green, and welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders in all walks of life. So we'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Stairway to CEO, guys. I'm your host, Lee Green. First up, we've got Dinah Trout. Dinah and I met at an event that I was co-hosting with Crosscut Ventures here in Los Angeles with a few other female founders. And Dinah and I just totally hit it off from the beginning. She's hilarious. And she's going to keep it real for us on the show. She is going to dive in and share all kinds of amazing nuggets of wisdom, like how to follow your gut. Which, side note, how amazing is it that her tagline for her company is following your gut? I mean, it's a kombucha company. Gut kombucha. Gut kombucha. Got it. Yeah. Hilarious, right? And how to build amazing company culture. She's done an incredible job in doing that. It's one of the most important things to do in building a business. She tells all. And she even tells us why not to be fearless. And I'm like, wait, what? I always talk about being fearless. What do you mean not being fearless? Like feeling fear? Oh, she goes into it. And I think you will love it just as much as I did. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the show. Please feel free to leave any feedback you want. I want to hear it all. I want to know exactly what you want to hear from these investors and founders and business leaders that will help you get to the next level. Can't wait to hear from you. And I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time in um, joining us. Yeah. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm so excited to learn about your incredible story and building health aid kombucha. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to get your name right, Dinah. Let's make it clear to everybody out there, you pronounce it (laughs) Dinah. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So let's just get started from the very beginning. I want to hear about what your childhood was like, what school you went to, what college, what you know, your first job. Let's like take it way back. Wow. Okay. <laughs> cool.
1: So I was born in 1981 in Saudi Arabia. Wow. Which may not be what you expected. <laughs> um and yeah, it was because My dad had a job there for six years installing basically massive satellites and telecommunication systems in remote parts of the world. And Saudi Arabia was one of them. And so his company brought him there and we all went with him, obviously, as his family. So um, I had two older sisters at the time. And so the five of us, my mom, my dad, and the three of us went to Saudi and we lived there for six years. I was born there. So I was sort of born halfway through there. six-year stint. So yeah, moved from Saudi to uh, Calgary, Alberta. That's where I spent the first part of my childhood. I was there until pretty much middle school. Growing up in Calgary was awesome, and I did grow up skiing every Sunday. We would go as a family, we'd wake up, have eggs. Calgary was that, fine. Moved to Potomac, Maryland, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C., from Calgary, moving to Potomac was like as if I was moving to Hollywood because it was America. And it was, like, a really um, anticipated time. Like, I was just so excited to move. I thought for sure I was going to live next door to Paula Abdul. Right. And we were going to be, like, best friends. (laughs) So I was sort of surprised when I showed up to Potomac and it was kind of just like Calgary and that it was, like, a bunch of farmland and, like, not Hollywood. And I was like, what the heck? Anyway, definitely, though, a lot of change culturally. um, More subtle changes, I would say. But major in a lot of ways between Canada and the U.S., And, you know, I had to deal with all that. So lived in Potomac, Maryland for my high school years. Um, My mom always cooked from scratch, everything, every day, super gourmet. Like I was that one in in high school that would come with like – not peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but like – you know, chevre, roasted red pepper, basil on ciabatta kind of bread. <laughs> Fancy, right? Yeah, a little bit <laughs> gourmet, lunch. always healthy, always delicious. Mm-hmm. And I would find myself like splitting it with all my friends because they'd be like, I have Cheetos for lunch. Right. And I'd be like, oh, do you want some of my, you know. <laughs> like, what's that? Yeah, curried cauliflower chips. <laughs> so really, I think that's that was instrumental. Still didn't know, of course, that I loved food, but I love food. Then I went to university at Georgetown in DC, just 25 minutes from home. And I did that because I was so close with my parents and I didn't really want to leave. Plus, Georgetown was a great school. So I just kind of wanted to be close. I uh, had a lot of fun in college, studied um, pre-med and was really into health sciences Sciences overall. I thought I was going to be a doctor and go to medical school. And a couple years in, I sort of realized that a PhD wasn't for me. Like I wasn't interested in doing research and that was really what the PhD was for. So I sort of pivoted and decided to do my master's instead. And then I did a second master's in public health. So I ended up spending five years in Boston and got two master's degrees, one in nutritional biochemistry and one in public health. So I definitely learned a lot about food and nutrition. That's really where it all started because... Combined with my love of food from the past and now my knowledge of food from a science perspective, I now kind of like really honed in on what my philosophy was around food. And mine was definitely different than a lot of people's in my school in that it was way more focused on how does food make you feel, mm-hmm. much more holistic mm-hmm. than a metric or like how much how many grams of sugar does this have. Or. So I, I really got into cooking. I actually pub- self published a cookbook at that time called Someone's in the Kitchen with Dinah. Yeah. Really,
0: you're an author. Oh, wow. Well. No yeah. I mean, I think it was pretty
1: <laughs> much just my family and. Friends. Friends about it, but um, you know, I was interested, and I, I applied to be the f- top Food Network chef every year. So I was into food, mm-hmm. and I was fermenting all kinds of things. You came to my apartment during that time, and there would be like things sprouting in the counter. I learned how to make kombucha back then. My husband Justin, I met in Boston. He was at Berkeley College of Music, and he was a musician. And we met at a restaurant. He was a waiter, and I was a um, hostess. It was fun coat room times. You guys
0: are working. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's great. Yeah,
0: and uh, so he, made he would the first move. What's the story there?
1: Oh, I mean, he was a waiter. I was a hostess. You know, we so we just like hung out. You know how restaurant scenes are. Mm-hmm. Like you spend all day together, and whenever there's downtime in the beginning, you know, like the four yeah. o'clock hour, or at the end when you're closing out, you just kind of hang out, and everybody goes and gets a beer after, and mm-hmm. so it just sort of happened like that. So yeah, like we hit it off, and Justin ate a lot of my food. And interesting thing about Justin, I think, and this does pertain to the story. That's why I'm saying it. He was really skinny when I met him. He was like 120 pounds and he's about six feet. So really skinny. And and it wasn't like a healthy kind of skinny. Um, He had trouble with like acid reflux and had a lot of difficulty keeping things down. And in fact, he was seeing a doctor and was about to go on meds probably for life, to control the acid. And he really couldn't eat much. That's why he was so skinny because he just always had an upset stomach. Everything upset his stomach. So he really just didn't eat a lot. And of course, as a, you know, bushy-tailed, green-eyed nutritionist, I'm like, let me heal you. I know everything (laughs) I I need to know. Yeah, (laughs) Screw the doctor. So I was like, give me six weeks before you go on these drugs. So we tried a lot, nothing worked. But then as soon as I started introducing fermented foods into his diet... Literally within hours, everything changed. Wow. So kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, just a little bit of something every morning suddenly allowed his stomach to be able to digest other foods. So it was like really an interesting kind of data point for me that like these things actually have serious power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fast forward to today, he's 175 pounds and normal, everything's normal and healthy. So it did heal him. Wow. And I think if you asked him his story, that would be a really big part of why he was into making kombucha. So we, we always ate fermented foods from then on. I felt like it had to be a part of our diet right. for sure. And uh, that's what it is. So we spent five years in Boston and I finished my school nutrition and was like, well, what do I do now? I'm really passionate about nutrition, but I also have like $200,000 in school debt because I went to Georgetown and then Tufts. So like I need a job that's going to help me pay that off. And anyway, so we decided that as a musician, he had to move either to LA or New York. And we had done the cold thing. My whole life, except for Saudi Arabia, it was like, I was, and it was a particularly bad winter that winter in Boston. So we decided to pack up our Saturn with everything that fit. If it didn't fit, didn't come, and we drove to LA. So we moved out here and started our lives. And I got recruited, kind of ironically, I guess, by a pharmaceutical company. And it's only ironic because I was so holistic that I, I was I was a person that wouldn't even take Advil. And in that five years, for sure, my drive to start something else grew. And it was the entrepreneurial drive for sure, like the concept that like I wanted to work for myself and I had it in me and I knew I could do it, all that grew. But then also the, you know, lack of alignment between what I was doing grew, right. like I'm not a lover of pharmaceuticals, it doesn't really align with me in that way. So that grew too and that kind of felt like I had to go somewhere else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, by the way, my first day on the job, yeah, I met Vanessa
0: Oh, your she best She was friend. paired with me, my best and friend and co-founder.
1: Founder. So that was kind of like the universe put wow. us together. Yeah. Hit it off right away. So we were like besties those five years. And she worked in that same company for the five years. We kind of like ended up on different teams. And I went a different route in the company than she did. Uh, but we were both there. And we both quit at the same time uh, to start HealthAid. So basically, we were all feeling that way about five years in. Justin Mm -hmm. was feeling unfulfilled in the music world. Like he had done a lot of things, but none of them were really panning out. And it was like a struggle Mm -hmm. feeling a little bit like, gosh, I just, I want this work to come back to me in a way that's fruitful, more fruitful. Vanessa and I were feeling the same way. And so we decided to start an entrepreneur club. And that was, you know, we invited all of our friends to my house and we would eat my sauerkraut and drink my kombucha And we would talk about what business we would start. We had 600 bucks each. You had to pay 600 bucks to join the club. So only three people showed up. (laughs) And so it was pretty clear who the founders were going to be. Me, Justin, and Vanessa. And we would come up with all kinds of ideas. We still have that binder. So Justin came back from the hairdresser, one of these entrepreneur club meetings, and he was told it was his last hurrah. He had a year left before he was bald. Oh my God. And he was 28 and he was super upset about it. And he was like, I I have to stop this from happening. 28?
0: That's so young. Yeah. And you know, like probably it's
1: genetic, but still, you know, he was like, we got to do something about this. And so we're all like, okay, let's research how to regrow hair. So we start researching how to regrow hair. And we find that in parts of the world, they use the kombucha scoby as a, as a as a mask on the head. For those of you who don't know, a kombucha scoby is basically a culture and it it is not only an ingredient for kombucha, so you can't make kombucha without it, but it's also a byproduct of kombucha. So every batch you have to make a batch of kombucha to make a scoby. So because I knew how to make kombucha, I knew how to make scobies. So it was like ding 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 ding, you know, like when we saw that people use these things in the world to regrow hair as a mask. I knew how to make scobies. It sort of felt like, oh my gosh, what we'll do is we'll farm these cultures and then sell masks and that's how we're going to, you know, that's the business we're going to (laughs) start. So it was a hair loss business, actually. So did it work? Well, Justin was going to be our guinea pig and we started, well, first I had to make a ton of cultures, right? Because we had to test this a thousand times. I'm a scientist after all. (laughs) So I start making a ton of kombucha. I always had kombucha brewing in my house because, you know, that was who I was But instead of making one jar, I was making 60 now, right? So now we're like really starting to farm this stuff in our closet. And I had to give the liquid away because I didn't, I couldn't drink 60 jars worth of kombucha every week, right? So I was giving it to friends, family, neighbors, whatever, and people were coming back being like, this is the best kombucha we've ever had. Like, can we have more? It's They started even giving us money for it, mm-hmm. which was interesting because the business started, I think, before we quite realized. And I remember being like, they don't know what they're even excited about. We got the real business back right. in the, back <laughs> in the closet, you know? <laughs> we didn't end up ever using a mask on Justin's head because we were trying to gather enough cultures first to be able to like really get started. And our goal was to get like a couple hundred cultures. And an opportunity came up, One of Vanessa's friends runs a farmer's market in LA and it's a particularly hard one to get into because it's so popular at Brentwood. And she was like, hey, there's like a three-month opening this summer because one of the farmers dipped. Do you want to sell your hair loss product there? And for us, we were so antsy to get started. You know, we had already done this entrepreneur club thing. We were already kind of like... You know, we had already waited too long to start this entrepreneur club in the first place. So it was just sort of like, oh, we can't miss this opportunity of selling in the farmer's market. Right. But it starts in two weeks. Like, we just, we just don't have the culture thing. And so we all looked at each other and we're like, well, we do have like 60 cases of unlabeled kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> so people say it's pretty good. So the three of us decided to sell for the summer months at Brentwood the kombucha. And we would take whatever money we made and apply it toward the hair loss business. So in a weekend... We came up with Health Aid. We made the labels. We taped them on.
0: This is before the farmers market. You <laughs> came up with all of this. all of it. All Let in a
1: get. literally all in about a one hour period of time. We sat around the table and came up with the whole thing: Health Aid, the brand, the anchor, follow your gut, best tasting, highest quality kombucha you can buy. And we made the labels. I drew it on like a post it, sent it to a friend of Justin's who was like a graphic designer and helped us out for 50 bucks in a case of kombucha to turn it into something a little bit nicer.
0: So you came up with the anchor. Yes. That's awesome. So where'd that come from? Why health aid? How? What happened in that hour? <laughs> By the way, I'm now a believer, and I think it's
1: a big reason we've been able to grow this fast, that like creative things sometimes are best out of a pressure cooker. Yeah. Like you know, and in just a couple hours, we were able to come up with all that. I think for two reasons because the, the pressure was on in a way, but then also the pressure was off. Like, we didn't need it to be the thing that was going to change the world.
0: Right. It was just going to be
1: a summer thing. Right. You know? You're like, yeah, we'll do this one farmer's market. Right? Yeah. Or it was like a summer.
0: Okay. For the summer. summer.
1: So it was like, we were going to do three months of it every Sunday. Okay. But at the same time, there was pressure on because it was like, we got to like send all these like, you know, renderings into the farmer's marketplace. So it was sort of like a funny thing. But yeah, I mean, the way we came up with everything is we knew that marketing is what sells. And so we wanted an icon because, you know, we admired all the brands that everyone admires. Nike. Apple, right. and they've got an icon. Uh-huh. So we needed an icon. And, <laughs> and um, we wanted it to represent what kombucha was to us, strong, grounding, made from natural elements. And we wanted our icon to be something that was like appealing to both men and women and not necessarily centered around like someone who does meditation and yoga. So we had three icons, the anchor, the uh, a really cool lion head that my sister drew. And then the third was like a kitschy kind of like Popeye arm. So... A few days uh, before that meeting, I was doing research on kombucha because remember, I was about to start selling it in the farmer's market and I had to learn about what the heck it was. Right. I knew how to make it, but like I didn't know the history and stuff and I knew I would get those questions. So I was like reading up on it. And I learned that kombu stands for seaweed in Japanese mm. and chas tea. So seaweed tea, interesting. So, you know, there's some myth out there, perhaps there's some truth to it that, Back in the day, it was somehow made with seaweed, or perhaps the SCOBY came from the sea. It does have kind of sea-like qualities. So it felt appropriate of the three icons to pick the anchor, because the anchor obviously connects it to the sea.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: So that's why we picked the anchor. And health aid, because Justin was drinking a Gatorade at that meeting. (laughs) And I was like, we were like, so what is kombucha? You know, we started writing down the words. And we were like, well, maybe to understand what it is, we have to understand what it's not. And we were like, well, it's not Gatorade. And then it was just sort of like, but so what what makes it different than Gatorade? And I was like, well, it's healthy. And Dustin was like, so what about healthy aid? And then we were like, well, we don't want to be like judgmental and say that this is healthy and something else is not healthy. So then, I don't know, we just kind of landed on healthy and it wasn't a big deal. So we were like, okay, yeah, sounds good. Rolls off the tongue. Let's go. (laughs) And to this day, I'm like, wow, what a great name we picked. Not just because for kombucha, it's great. But like, let's say we do anything outside of kombucha, basically it's like better for you beverage. Hello.
0: Hello. Amazing. And
1: no idea about the potential there at the time. (laughs) And then follow your gut. Of course, it was meant to be like a tagline about kombucha probiotics, your gut, gut health. But... I had no idea that that tagline would be so meaningful to me because it's actually become like a business practice for us. We didn't know what we were doing and how we got here was really by following our intuition. Mm -hmm. And it's something, it's not only what we did to build this, but it's also what we want to like inspire others to do. It really felt almost like there must've been some kind of higher power in that day because I don't know how, but it all turned out just right
0: (laughs) Insane. So were you guys full-time yet or just still part-time?
1: Totally part-time. Everything we were doing was nights and weekends. So Mm -hmm. that, okay, so we sold our first bottle March 25th, 2012. We were all still employed and working. So it was like, you know, nights, weekends, and it was really hard work. The farmer's markets are hard work. We love to go to them and peruse and taste and have fun. But let me tell you, those guys have to be there at six in the morning. They've they already packed the trucks, unpacked the trucks, packed the coolers, unpacked the coolers. You got to think about cash. You got to park. You're lo- By the time you set up, you've already done like four hours of work. Right. Then you've got the eight hour market or six hour market in the sun <laughs> where you're selling and you're constantly talking and you're, and this is your company. Yeah. So you're just giving your heart and soul. Right. It's hard. Exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and it's your Sunday and you got to work the next day, not to mention after the, Market, we would go and brew kombucha. Right. So it was really tough that first year. It was so physically challenging and mentally challenging and exhausting that right around the end of the year, we kind of looked at each other. The reality was we couldn't keep going like that. We would burn out pretty fast. And so we all had to make a call like, what are we going to do? Are we going to just stay in this space of this brand seems pretty awesome. We've got a lot of buzz. By the way, when we showed up at the first market, we sold out in an hour, and it, that summer was insane. Like, we went from three markets to seven, or sorry, one market to three markets to seven markets really fast. We were like constantly, there was no free time besides kombucha. And it was like just, there was so much response to our kombucha. So we just kept giving to it and it kept demanding more and kept giving to it. And it was a really cool summer in that got a lot of buzz out of the brand. We were starting to make a name for ourselves in LA mm-hmm. already that summer. So at the end of the year, I think we were all really excited by it, that we had kind of landed on something. And it was clear it wasn't going to be the hair loss thing, by the way. We kind of like ditched that. We used the Scobies to make kombucha. He's like, what kombucha. about my hair? <laughs> yeah. what, what about my We're me? like, fuck the hair. <laughs> and then also we're like, maybe you just need to drink it. Let's see that. So we never ended up using any Scobies on Justin's hair. To this day, he still has a full head. So who knows? It was the kombucha. It was sure. the kombucha. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the year, we were like excited about what the potential was. We could feel it in our bones. Plus, this was our dream. Like we were Mm -hmm. really having fun and it was really fulfilling to do the business piece, even though it was so exhausting. But we realized like, we're not going to be able to take it to the next level unless we were all systems go, all attention put on this, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we had to make a call at the end of the year. And though everyone, our family, our friends were like, don't quit your jobs. Please don't quit your jobs and start a kombucha company from the farmer's market. Like (laughs) not a good idea. You know? Um, and in a lot of ways, it wasn't because there was no security in this business. There was no paycheck in this business. Right. And it was going to be really tough. We didn't have significant savings at all. So, you know, they were like, don't do that. Keep going where you're going. Like, it's obviously working a bit, but like, wait to quit. Wait until what? What were they expecting? I think they wanted right us there? to wait. I mean, it's like the safe thing, what you would want your friend to do. You know, you, you want them to wait until they have enough money to like, so it's safe, it's mm-hmm. safer. You know, and I totally get why they felt that way, but we knew the three of us that there was no way we were going to get health aid to that place, right? Unless we gave it all our all because it was like too hard and we were going to burn out, right? So we decided to quit. We jumped ship at the end of the year, December of 2012 ish, and January 1 ish, we started with 100% health aid. And I remember the day that we all showed up. It was like January 3rd or something. And we were like, oh, shit. <laughs> because there is no paycheck coming now. Right. And game like- Game on. Game on. Yeah. But it was the best thing. I'm even getting goosebumps now because I remember being like, okay. The three of us were like, strategy meeting. Because before it was all like, we're just making kombucha and responding to the demand. There was no like- Real strategy applied to it. Right. So we were in around seven stores at that point because we were just kind of like delivering after the farmers markets to a couple cool high end premium markets that were into it. But we were like, obviously, the business has to survive in wholesale. It's not a farmers market business. So we have to sell in bulk to these stores. How do we get from seven to 7,000? Like that was what we started talking about. And we realized that the three of us couldn't do it alone, we would need a team. So we like put an ad on Craigslist for people. We're like, do you want to work for free kombucha? We didn't get too many responses. But then we were like, what about free kombucha and 10% of sales? And we did get some response there. So I remember March 1st, we had our first training session. Like 12 individuals showed up from Craigslist. And they were just like passion people around kombucha and food. And they would sell our kombucha to stores. And we gave them each a geography. And that was how we started. And in three months, we went from seven stores to 300.
0: Wow. You know, taking that leap, I think, is something a lot of people struggle with. So what were some of the things that, you know, you mentioned intuition and following your gut, but how how does one follow their gut? A and B, what kind of what was it for you and your team that was just like, let's just jump. Now is the time to do this?
1: Well, people ask me all the time, like, how you know, how did you get your confidence to do that? And I'm like, I wasn't confident. I was so scared. Mm-hmm. So it's not about being fearless. I actually, I see sometimes people be like, I'm fearless. And I'm like, well, I wasn't fearless at all. So you got one up on us, you know? It does take courage. You do it anyway. Right. Feel the fear and so do it So there's anyways. different. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's not fearlessness because I will tell you it, it it was the scariest move we ever made. So I guess the intuition for me looked like or felt a little bit like a voice that was sort of like, you know, future looking and just saw that like, I couldn't keep going like this.
0: Right. Like Like, what do you have to lose anyways? Yes. I just couldn't keep going
1: like this. Like it was like, I wasn't happy at my job. I couldn't keep working my job, you know, 40 hours a week and then health aid the remainder. I was so tired and exhausted. And then more importantly, I understood, I mean, you know, I don't know if it was my lessons from pharma or what, I understood that if like we really wanted this thing to take off, it was going to take more effort than we were giving it. It couldn't just be like the sort of like make kombucha effort. It was going to have to be way more strategic and Mm -hmm. like, okay, so how do we get into Whole Foods? That's a thing. You can't just do that on nights and weekends. So I think it was just the understanding from the three of us that like, if we really wanted to do this, it was going to take time and effort. We didn't have the money. So it's not like I could hire somebody to do that. If I did, maybe that would have been an option, but we didn't. So it was just sort of like an understanding that like, if we were going to, and I think the three of us are a little bit risk takers. So we kind of looked at each other and we're like, what do we have to lose? We have a we have a job to lose and that sucks but like I remember having the conversation of being like we could probably get another job. We have 5 years of sales experience. It's not the worst thing to say. We went and tried to start a company and it didn't work and right. <laughs> now we're back, you know? Plus, we felt like the farmers market was a place we could sell. So, we knew at the very minimum we could make that like make enough money to like maybe survive. Although I will tell you I was living on $7 a day split between me and my husband. Oh my so it was a lot of ramen noodle. right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it was, it was hard, but like, I don't know, the intuition really just was more like a, a belief that we could do it. And gosh, would we regret it if we didn't? And that if we kept going like this, it wasn't going to work. So it was just sort of all these things and the three of us together it certainly helped to have the three of us. Cause everybody right. was telling us, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And it was really the three of us that kind of came together. And though it felt very lonely, we did have each other to be like, okay, we're in this together. Right. It wouldn't have happened. I can tell you it wouldn't have happened if we didn't quit our jobs. So I do think there is always for every entrepreneur, you have to think about it like this. There's always a price you have to pay. Mm-hmm. It's just not that easy. But there is a price. That price is either gonna come in monetary price. So you pay, you pay a risk. And a lot of people have the money to do that, and that's great. And you, that risk would come through either investing in a company or investing in a person to do the work, but there's some kind of payment. <laughs> now, if you don't have the money, that's okay. We didn't either, but the risk has to come through some other kind of form of payment. Right. And I believe that it really just takes work to grow a business and work is done by people. So you're, you're going to have to do the work then. Right. It's either you pay somebody to do the work or you do the work. So the, pay, the the price is either going to come in the form of your time and effort and energy or your dollars. Yeah. And you just, you can't get around that. So if you don't have the money, I'm sorry, you're going to have to quit your job right. <laughs> and exactly. work for the company. That's <laughs> what it is. Take you got to jump bill. at yeah. some point and yeah. don't wait too long because you're just, if you're stuck, you're stuck. Nothing's going to change. Right. You yeah. just lose more energy, actually.
0: Right. The momentum kind of slows. Mm-hmm. What have been some of the biggest challenges? Because, you know, you and I were talking about this before, about how, like, startups and kind of founders are glamorized in today's PR. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those missteps that you took or or failures that you had that you had to peel yourself back off the ground and, and get running again?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think it's hilarious when
1: people portray entrepreneurism as glamorous. I mean, I I don't know what is glamorous about entrepreneurism. Right. I'll tell you what has been so far. The times that I go to those glamour events and I feel very glamorous because I've done my makeup and I look pretty and somebody's like, you know, rewarding us for our hard work. That feels glamorous. The other thing I think that I see is glamorous is at the end of the road when entre- an entrepreneur acquires a bunch of wealth. Through selling their company or through building a company that pays them really well, mm-hmm. that's glamorous. Right. You know, or even just got raising a huge yeah. amount
0: of money, or fine, right? But that's
1: actually not glamorous. It's Let me tell you, that's depressing, is
0: miserable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's <was> miserable.
1: <laughs> but like, you do meet those people that are like, you know, they've hit, they've, they've come to the end. They have a nice house, like those things, and we think like, oh my gosh, they really. Did it Because they did it themselves and they built it and now they own it. And it's like, right. we kind of, I think, fantasize about their life. But like, let me assure you, to get there, there was a whole price they paid. Yep. And that price is not glamorous. So I think that's a good thing to start with is like, it's anything but glamorous. yeah And the challenges are enough to fill a thousand books. I mean, it's nothing but challenges. In fact, I think that anybody... I think that starting a business is literally just constant problem solving. In the beginning, especially, you have this plan or this idea of how it's going to go, and then it doesn't go like that. And in every way you can imagine, you're basically problem solving. Something that goes wrong, and you have to fix it. And then you got to do it better for next time. And you have to create a system so that that doesn't happen again. Okay, good. Done. Done with that problem. Now another one comes up, and then another one. And it's like falling off a horse a thousand times a day, and then getting back on each time though your bruised, tired, hurt, and doing it better. Right. The cool thing about that, though, is everybody has that capability. Like it's just work and energy and motivation and confidence. That's all it is. It's not skill, you know, expertise. It's just about getting back up on that horse, you know, and
0: doing it again. And I think that's like cool because everybody has access to that. You did What's something like specific maybe from the early days that just like kind of took the wind out of your sails or made you think like, oh my gosh, am I cut out for this? <laughs> this yeah. Is crazy. Yeah. I mean, and I, yeah. I think
1: like when you ask like what are the challenges,
0: like a few themes
1: come up. I mean, the first thing that comes up is definitely money, capital. Mm-hmm. Like when you're growing super fast like that, you are spending money for things that you're not going to see the money returned from for a while. So, like, we would be spending money in March for something I wouldn't see the return on until, like, October. That's what the reality is when you're, like, doing this distributor game of, like, selling distributors. Then they get to the store. Then the store has 45 days to pay the distributor. Distributor has 90 days to pay you. You know, stuff like that. And you don't yet have the, like, clout and, like, performance to be, like, negotiating better terms. Mm. So they're like, no, no, you're getting 60 days payback or we don't carry you. That's like basically what's happening in the beginning. And you're like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it takes capital to drive that at that kind of speed. And, you know, we didn't have it. We didn't have any assets either. So we couldn't take any personal loans. So I found capital be a, a constant challenge. And especially mm-hmm. in the beginning, like when Amex called and they were like, we're shutting down your credit card. I oh, we were no. like, what? <laughs> like, that's how we buy things. So it was like really hard in yeah. the beginning, the capital game. We manufacture our kombucha. So all of the equipment it takes to do that, like one stainless steel tank mm-hmm. just to brew the tea, that's like not something to be laughed at in terms of cost. Yeah. Filling lines, they cost millions. Wow. So it's it's like a constant question, like where do you spend the capital? When do you spend the capital? Um, and how do you get the capital?
0: Have you fundraised? Mm-hmm. I assume how much have you raised so far? Let's just say I, I don't say the
1: exact amount, but yeah. we've done five rounds and it's been over twenty five million. Okay. How is that fundraising process for you? Yeah, not glamorous. <laughs> um, you know, so part of it is finding the right partners. We've got two groups invested in health aid. and um I think the first round is the hardest round. There may be some nuances in future rounds that make them really difficult, but, The first round is the hardest because you really just don't know. So unless you're in like M&A or in finance, it's hard because you just don't know. And there's all this language that doesn't make sense. And you're afraid because these guys are super pros at it,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, often referred to as like sharks. And here you are just like the business person, the business owner that's like, I hope I'm not signing my life away. The other thing to think about in the very beginning is how important you are as a founder. I think like if I were to ever do a business again, Mm -hmm. I would just be like, totally handling it differently. In what like, ways? When you write these types of agreements between you and the investor, you are not the company. And I think in the beginning, you kind of feel like you are because right. there's no separation between your personal life and the company. So you're basically just giving of yourself. It's like your blood.
0: And kind of selling yourself as well and yeah. how hard you work and how, you know, right. the whole dynamic as but well. But you're not like coming
1: with the package. The business <laughs> is its own thing. So we right. forget that as founders. Yes. So I think in the beginning, it was just like health aid, health aid needs to win. We were so selfless about it. And what I would do differently is be like, okay, now let's talk about the founder contract. Mm. Like it's like almost got to be its own thing. Okay, great. Let's do this for health aid. This is what you're going to do in exchange for this equity, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. We can agree there. Now I've got my personal lawyer here to talk about how we keep the founders incented and paid. And because like, that's a really important thing to do. What we did and what a lot of founders do is they kind of quote unquote, screw themselves until they realize four years in, like we did, what everyone else is doing. And we're like, wait, you guys actually pay yourselves reasonable salaries? Wait, you pay yourselves bonuses? Right. Wait, you do that stuff? Because we were like, underpaying ourselves significantly. Yeah. I mean, four years in, I was still making a quarter of what I was making at Pharma five years prior because I was so like thinking that that money shouldn't go to me. It should go to health aid.
0: Right. You know? Totally.
1: And that's very righteous. And I totally think it's like the right value to have of being resourceful like that. So you don't want to lose that resourcefulness. It's not that you want to just like pay like inflated prices, but you should be paying yourself what you would pay someone if you right. hired them. Right. That's what it should be. So, one advice I would give to people is get your own lawyer for your personal and have them approach the contract now with you in mind. Mm-hmm. And what what they'll do is they'll negotiate with your investors what is appropriate for you. Yeah. And it's not like it makes sense for a, a founding business, you know, that has no income yet or something to make you know five hundred thousand dollars salary. That's I'm not saying that you would get inappropriately paid. You still need to pay yourself what is appropriate for the business. And in the beginning, that's not going to be a ton, mm-hmm. right? But it, should, it shouldn't it should be a quarter of what it should be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is what we did. And we did that for way too long. Yeah. And then we found ourselves in a position where I'm like, I'm working so hard. I can't even afford like my groceries. And I remember one mm-hmm. of my investors being like, why, why do you pay yourself so little? Right. And we were like, well...
0: <laughs> Are we supposed to?
1: <laughs> yeah. And then we kind of realized. So then the, the last two rounds, we got smart. And started thinking about that. But it was a little bit late. Like we had lost a lot of, like I would have been in a totally different financial position at that point if I had just paid myself a more normal salary. Right. So I tell founders all the time, like when you're at that point of investment with like private equity investors and stuff like that and venture capital people, that should absolutely be a part of the conversation. Yeah. And as you get more successful, it should increasingly be more of a part. Right. Right. Um, not just what are you paid, but also how are you incented? Right. Every time you get diluted, can you introduce some kind of a uh, protection for yourself or bonus? Like if you hit these markers, you get to keep some of that ownership that you were going to lose. Yeah.
0: Because at the end of the day, the,
1: the investors are not doing the work.
0: Um, right. And I feel like a lot of founders get into their business bootstrapping it so hard and they take so much of a pay cut and they kind of don't know when to switch that off yeah. to finally start actually getting paid a normal salary. Yeah, um, So that that's a really good point and really good advice.
1: Yeah. There is no award for the least paid. Right. Um, and that took us too long to figure out. So that's one piece. Another lesson is I think in the beginning, again, we were so inexperienced and kind of like green that – we saw these investors as almost like, we almost like idolized them and like they were on a kind of like pedestal. It's like, please like me. Yes. (laughs) Look what a good job we're doing. And I think that's like actually really problematic. They can't be good investors and board members if you're too like positive and too like sugarcoaty. I guess is the word, not positive. Like if you're sugarcoating everything and if you're not appropriate, like if you're listening and not actually saying your opinion enough you know, um, it's actually problematic. It doesn't make a very functional relationship. So in the beginning, I think we would be like, our board meetings, for example, would all be about how awesome the quarter was. We got zero value out of those board meetings for as a company, which really doesn't do us any good if we've got serious experts on the board, right? They're just basically hearing how good their investment is going. That's it. Right. So it took us a couple years to figure out, but when we shifted the board meetings to be more of a dialogue, in fact, the update for the quarter was sent to them in advance, and it was, it's supplementary, so we don't even discuss it now. It's sent in advance about a week early. We give them the supplement deck. It has all of the updates, the great hires we've made, the great strides we've made, all that stuff. It's sent to them, and we're like, do you have any questions on that? Let us know. We're not even covering this in the meeting. And in the meeting, we call it our discussion deck, and it's a totally separate deck. And that deck is where we actually have dialogues about really important things for the business, intersections, which way do we go? Um, Here's a really complex update on something that you need to know about, you know, serious issues that you want their feedback and insights on. So that's a huge thing that I'm like, we could have done that from the beginning and should have done that in the beginning because that's when you really need their guidance. These people are on your board because they've been there, done that. And then, yeah, just making sure that when you hold your space in those meetings with them, whether they're formalized like in a board meeting or not, that you are, you recognize the power you hold. You are the holder of the paintbrush and the canvas. You have a vision. You got it to where it is. You know a lot more than you think you do. So don't cower to them. Like they're not better than you, right? And the more I realize that, and that's a journey, the more actually healthy the relationship is. Right. Because you're equals and they're just giving you their opinion. Yeah. And you're giving them your opinion. But at the end of the day, you hold the paintbrush. You really right. do. And so they're expecting you to. They want you to.
0: Yes. They're like, this is why I'm investing in you. Right. If you tell me what's right. going on.
1: And they might have a really strong opinion. And I think you should always listen mm-hmm. because if they have a strong opinion and they have the experience, there might be something there. But it still doesn't mean you need to follow it. So, I think, you know, in the beginning I was always like, oh, I'll do whatever they say. Or, you know, oh, he said this or "He, she said that. I didn't quite appreciate my own role there. So I don't yeah. know. I think the faster you can go through that and realize you hold the paintbrush and you hold the power, it's way healthier. Another challenge I would mention besides capital is the personal one. Like, and I kind of think we touched on it a bit with the board, but, or the investors, but like your personal journey through this yes. CEO thing is like a really important one that mm-hmm. we don't talk about. Where you start. With this vision and this idea to where you're going to end up if you're an operating CEO, which is you're operating a company, a business, a product, 200 people now for us. It's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to do this back then. And I couldn't have done this back then, actually. I wasn't the right person yet.
0: So what do you mean by that? What made you the right person?
1: A lot of things, everything. Every time I fell off that horse and got back back on, but it's important not to only think about those external things as important. Like, okay, let me be more specific. You know, we talked about, for example, like coming to those board meetings with like a lot of insecurity and thinking that like they're better than you. You have to drop that baggage and you have to work to drop that baggage. It doesn't just happen. You know, you have to sort of analyze why are you doing that? How do you stop doing that? And then practicing not doing that. And then lo and behold, you've stopped doing that. You know, just like any yeah. other habit. I think that in general, people probably go through transformations like that at least once a decade. You know, you think about your 20s, your 30s, or maybe even once every five years. But as a business owner, you're doing it like 10 times a year. Yeah. I feel like you're doing it all the time. Right. I, I remember saying to my executive coach the other day, I'm like, I'm just done with the transformations for this year. <laughs> I, I I know I still have imperfections. i I'm enough. <laughs> I just want to fucking let those, imper- can those imperfections just be for a moment. I think they bring character to me for the love of God. It's who I am. It's who I am. Okay. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, just being really like honest with yourself and constantly working on yourself, it's reality. What I would say about myself is I had all kinds of issues about success and hierarchy of where I placed people in my mind and most importantly myself. And that kind of like lowered my confidence level to be able to like even hold conversations with certain people. Yeah. So for me, it was all about confidence. It was all about gaining confidence in who I was along that journey. And what's crazy about that is I I had access to it the whole time. Right. Yeah. That's the weird thing about confidence is it's like a like in your head, right? You know, it's
0: there. Gosh, it's just- I had
1: the same feelings five years ago about what I needed to do. I just didn't have the courage to say it, mm. you know, to person X Y Z or situation X Y Z.
0: So you I mean think like standing up for yourself or yeah. like saying something that yeah. you're like, I should have yeah. defended myself. Where was I? Why was I not? Yeah. That
1: way, yeah. You know? I mean, approaching like difficult conversations, like let's mm-hmm. say your first termination. Oh my right. God, that was so hard for me that first right. time. I didn't want to hurt the person's feelings. I w- yeah. I didn't want them not to like me. It was a very kind of very complex situation. And yeah. now, I mean, it's not like I do it like it's easy. It's still the worst part of the job, but it's, it's like I know how to do these because I have a lot more confidence and understanding that this is business. It's not um, personal.
0: What are some things that you do or practice or say to yourself or what are the things that you do... It's to help build your confidence or to help with your personal development?
1: So one thing that's helped me along the journey is to have an executive coach. So I talk to somebody every two weeks-ish, and I've talked to her the whole time. And that was really helpful for me, especially in those beginning massive sort of like uh, molting phases. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because they really like, you know, you would be able to talk to them about that insecurity. Yeah. Because you know it's happening. Right. It's not like they would be pointing it out to you. Right. You would know Mm because it's eating you up inside and you can't stop crying about it. (laughs) And you're like, why? I'm so stupid. Why did I say it like that? Or whatever. (laughs) And they can really help you kind of like work through each issue. And sometimes it's just talking about it. And, you know, each time it maybe led me to like a book or like some kind of habit or practice. I don't know that there's like one in particular that I would be like, you got to do that. Right. Because each one is so specific to the issue at hand. I think the important point is that you're working on it that you give yourself the space, the time to work on it.
0: Yeah. I think coaching is something that's completely underrated. And I don't think founders really talk about it enough. The ones that are getting coaching and...
1: It's huge. It's really
0: important. You know? I
1: think it's hugely important to me. And I think every person is different too. Like Justin doesn't get a lot. He he got a lot out of coaching for a bit, but it's not as much his thing. Mm-hmm. So I think you got to find what is your thing. But the most important thing is space. You got to have, you know, like everything takes work. Yes. Yeah. So that takes time. You got to put away time for your own development. The other thing that people don't talk about enough is like the company piece. Like, so you see a product on the shelves. This is what I hear all the time. We're like, oh my God, it's everywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. Isn't that so exciting? That's the right. glamorous part. Right. It's like the success of it all. And then and then, what we'll also talk a lot about is how we make the kombucha. Mm-hmm. Glass jars, cold-pressed juice, all the, you know, craft Whey. Very proud. Those are the two things we'll talk about. What we don't talk about is how the heck did it get on 15,000 shelves yeah. so fast? Exactly. And yeah, there's strategy to that. And there's a structure and a great team of people, but like, I'm telling you what got it there is the company. The company of people got it there. For me to have gotten it there, we, like not me, we, the founders, we had to build a really strong company to do that. Nobody talks about that part.
0: Yeah. The people, the the
1: culture, the values, the team. And I'm not just talking the structure. It's the people. Right. How do they all work in unison to this goal. I mean, you can't double and triple the size of a business without having a team that's really in unison. right? And so that's the piece that I'm like, it's funny that nobody really talks about that one because it's like so important to me. Well, let's go into it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, we talked a lot already about the like executive coach piece, but that's, that's like, you know, it's basically like you got to think about your culture and your values and what kind of people you want to hire. And I mean, it's not a great answer, but like, it just takes time and effort. You can't just be like head down, work, 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 work. You have to like keep people happy and engaged and communicate with them to understand, are they happy and engaged? And if they're not, what do you need to fix? Mm -hmm. So there's that whole process and system that's required. You have to build that. That Right. And check
0: in often. Like how often are you checking in? And like maybe. So you have to build that process in your company. What we did,
1: I require that all of my managers, anybody who manages people has to meet with their, each of their direct reports one-on-one every week. Okay. Doesn't sound that game changing but everyone resists it at first because they're like, well, I already like touch base with each of my people once a week. That's like a no brainer. And I'm like, no, no, no. You have to have a scheduled meeting once a week. It doesn't have to be full, full hour, but schedule an hour and you're just touching base with them. And the reason that's really important, again, doesn't sound game changing, but the reason I think it's important is it allows for that space for the employee to share the stuff that they're not going to share on a drive-by, hey, dropping by your desk, just want to talk to you about that. those two quick issues. Yeah, you got it? Okay, moving on. That's not management. Management is sitting down being like, okay, let's talk through, yeah, you talk about the priorities, but let's talk through all the things on your plate. And then there's a little space in there for the person to be like, this really pissed me off, or there was this person, this thing happened, or maybe this happened at home and this is impacting my work. Like, you just aren't going to get that with the drive-by meetings. So that's one requirement. But again, that's a process that has to be pushed by the founder. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people, like, resisted that, especially the experienced managers. They're like, I know how to manage my people. And I'm like, fine, you do what you want, but I want you to have that meeting. And it's one of the things that, like, I now hear – after they've been with us for a while, that's like one of the best things they have because there's less people issues as a result. I'm like, duh, I knew that. But like, I'm the one that had to push that. That's one thing we did. another thing we did is um, I created something called the click meeting, which it happens basically every six to eight weeks. The whole company gets together and there's a bit of a company update. It's somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes long. And every department gives a a quick update on what they've been up to in the last eight, eight weeks. There's some, usually some celebrations and there's some kind of message from me Um, that's really focused on that timeline. Like, okay, we're doing this really well, team. We need to focus on this. This is what we're really focused on. But it's a really kind of like team, sort of like a team meeting every six weeks. And then, you know, we do reviews twice a year. That's a process that has to be implemented. How do you do those reviews? How do you like make sure all the reviews are being done the same? Incentives, bonus, KPIs. These are all things you have to introduce And you have to build it how you want. But this is all how you get a company to run. And then, you know, do you get everybody together once a year? I say yes. So once a year in the holiday times, we have what we call victory week. And everybody gets, you know, because we assume we're going to be victorious. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) we get everyone together and we hang out and we we celebrate and we learn about what the plans are. We we do all kinds of things. Like That's a really important week for the company that everybody comes in. Is it an expense? Yeah. I mean, I've got 200 employees now, so that's like wow. several hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. But like, and every year I have my team, especially the frugal ones being like, do we really need to do this this year? And I'm like, yes. How do you think we get like this? <laughs> right. It's all these things. So the company piece cannot be underrated. And And then also defining what your values are and like really making sure those aren't just like words on a page. That's how, those are all the things I think on the top of my head that we've done to kind of like instill this really connected, communicative and incented culture. And I can't tell you, I think how important it is. I mean, I I watch a lot of friends who are in the same stage being forced to build on their culture because it's gotten so bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a lot harder to dig yourself out of a negative culture or a dysfunctional culture than it is to... Maintain a strong one. Yeah, there's always tweaks. I'm not saying my culture's perfect mm-hmm. at all. It's not. But we focus on it. And with that focus and that process and those systems comes a return.
0: Just yeah. like
1: everything else. Yeah. And that return is a team that's pretty communicative. They're pretty in unison. So you can hit your goals. And you hit your goals and suddenly you're everywhere. And everybody's like, oh, my God, that's so amazing. And
0: you're like, well, it actually took people. Right. It took people working <laughs> together. Yep. So just... Three more questions, I think, before we wrap. Um, first question is, what's your favorite flavor of kombucha? It is pomegranate. No okay. question. But
1: the jalapeno kiwi cucumber is sort of like a very coming on strong for me.
0: Sort of <laughs> tastes like a mar- margarita without the tequila. It's awesome. amazing. Yeah. Mine is definitely the Pink Lady Apple. Oh, nice. my favorite. Nice. Um, other That's question. our number one flavor, by the way. It is? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I've got good taste. It must you know? be you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just buying all of it, and you're like, oh, my God, sales are through the roof for that one. Um, so what's the future look like? Yeah. Um, bright. I know it's bright. I'm excited. But I mean, as far as do you have yeah, anything you more to share <laughs> for like the next, you know, the end of this year, what new flavors coming out and what new stores? I don't know. Yeah. What can you share? Yeah. I mean, we're filling in the white
1: space right now in grocery. So I mean, in off premise. So we're kind of already everywhere in natural, but now you're going to start seeing us everywhere in the conventional space and the convenience space. We're starting to tap into even mass and clubs so like Costco and Target and Walmart. Um, So that's huge. Just us expanding into just more places that you shop. Even gas stations is the thing. So that's the future. And then the other future is also like on premise, like where you go to restaurants and cafes and bars and like maybe you're out with your friends and you want to be social, but you don't necessarily want to drink alcohol. So we want to be in those places too. So that's kind of the next step for health aid in terms of that. And uh, I don't know. It's bright because, you know, kombucha continues to grow as a category. And I think it's replacing less healthy alternatives. And that makes me happy from like a worldly perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, health aid intends to like continue to grow in that community piece too, impact. I think that's important to
0: think about your social impact. How do you define success? What metric do you use with that?
1: You know, that's a moving target. Success is a word that I don't quite, re- like, I don't really understand that word too much. For me, the word is more like happiness. So I guess success is happiness. And that's why it's a moving target because what makes me happy changes. I think if I were to see the position I'm in today, five years ago, I would be like, oh my God, like you just, you could just stop right there. Yeah. But obviously things change and I, I want more things for myself and I don't mean material things. So, you know, as long as you're always tapped into like what makes you happy and you're going for those things, I think that's successful.
0: Well, that's about it. I think if you have any other advice for aspiring entrepreneurs, do you have anything you want to share? Yeah.
1: So follow your gut,
0: number one, and not just plug in my
1: tagline there, but kind (laughs) of. Kind of. And then I've got this quote, you've heard it behind my computer. I did then what I knew how to do. Now that I know better, I do better.
0: Nice. I think so
1: many of us put like an added coat of guilt on top of things we did wrong. Right. But you didn't know before you knew. So don't put that guilt on there. Like so much of business is figuring it out as you go. And I think we hold ourselves back by adding that extra layer of like, oh, I should have known better. Mm-hmm. But how would you have known better? You've never done this before. Right. right. So giving yourself that kind of like cutting yourself a little bit of slack... Yeah. there and just being like, okay, I made a mistake. The faster you can move on and not hold yourself back. I swear the more
0: successful you'll be. I agree. There's a really cool little artwork or saying in your bathroom that I noticed. Oh yeah. Which one? The pink being one or the blue one? Awesome is uh, wildly inconvenient. Yeah. That's Justin's
1: quote. So being wi- being awesome is wildly inconvenient. That's true. It's
0: not glamorous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we'll end with that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It was yeah. awesome. Thank you. you. Thanks. It was nice talking to you too. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. You can learn more about HealthAid Kombucha at www.health-aid.com. That's health-ade.com. If you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach out to us at stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on climbing, guys.